You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. In the United Kingdom, there is a flag known as the Royal Standard Flag. This Royal Standard Flag represents the Sovereign and the United Kingdom. The Royal Standard Flag is flown when the King is in residence in one of the Royal Palaces on the king's car, on official journeys, and on aircraft when on the ground. It is also and can be flown on any building that the king is at. If the owner wants the flag to fly, to let them know that the king is there, they will fly this royal standard flag. The royal standard also is used to be flown on board the royal yacht when it's in service and the king is on board. So they have this royal standard flag, but then they have a union flag. And this union flag flies when the king is not present. So they'll take the, uh, the royal flag down and they'll put the, the uh, union flag up. But what, here's, here's what's interesting about the royal flag. Unlike the union flag, the royal standard flag is never flown at half-mast, even after the death of a monarch. And the reason why is there is always a sovereign on the throne. So it never goes to half mass because there's always someone in authority. There's always someone in charge. As we are working our way through the book of Matthew, Matthew in essence is raising the royal standard flag so that we can see in the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount, that they would hear Jesus' words and they would say, there's no one that talks with the authority that Jesus talks. Matthew is raising that flag to say Jesus has all authority. And he just doesn't end with the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we've seen the works of Jesus. And the flag hasn't come down. The royal standard flag has stayed up, right? Because not only does Jesus' words have authority and power, but also Jesus' works have all authority and power. And so we have seen the flag of Jesus waving over disease. We have seen the, the flag of Jesus waving over death. We have seen the flag of Jesus waving over nature. We have seen the flag of Jesus waving over all these different circumstances and situations. And it's all pointing us to the reality that Jesus has all authority. And so today we come to finish out this section of Matthew where he has been showing us this reality that Jesus' royal flag is up, that he has all authority through his 
works. We're going to look today specifically at Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 38. Here's the outline of our passage today. In verses 18 through 26, we're going to see that Jesus has authority over death. In verses 27 through 31, we're going to see that Jesus has authority over disability. Verses 32 through 34, we'll see that Jesus has authority over the devil. And really, the section of scripture, probably we could put a line in right here, and that's where it ends. In verses 35 through 38, we come to a transitional section of the text where we're moving from the words and works of Jesus to we're coming back to a discourse, another teaching. If you'll remember, the book of Matthew is outlined by five teachings. So we've already had one teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Now we're going to come to a second teaching in Matthew chapter 10. And so the last part of chapter 9 is the expansion of Jesus' authority. How is he going to spread his authority through the earth. So stand with me as we read God's word together. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9 verses 18 through 38. I'm going to read it aloud. You follow along quietly on the screen or, or in your Bible. I always do this because I want us to get the context of what's going on. So we're not pulling sections out. We hear it all together as one. But I want to remind you as we read through this section, why is Matthew telling us these miracles that Jesus is doing? Why is he repeatedly, and right by now we're up to like 10 miracles that Jesus has done in these two chapters. Why is Matthew showing us this? Matthew is showing us this because he wants us to see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Remember, his audience is mainly Jewish. And so he's over and over again telling them Jesus is the king of the Jews. This son of David, this son of Abraham that you've been waiting for, this is him. So when we interpret Matthew, we always have to do it through that lens. Through the lens that Matthew is basically making his case to his mainly Jewish audience that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Now, we're not Jewish people in this room. And so for us, as we read it, we see it as Jesus is the king of, the king, king of kings, right? But for the audience that Matthew was writing to, they would have been seeing this as Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the king of the Jews. So it's very important, especially in today's text, that we read it through that lens. And I'll tell you why as we work through it together. Okay, verses 18 through 38, you follow along quietly, I'll read out loud. And while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose 
And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, <clears throat> be <clears throat> excuse me, done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had, cast, had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in all their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Father, thank you for the gift of the Bible. And that every Sunday we don't gather around a personality. We don't gather around a style of worship. We gather around your word and we desire to hear from you, from your word today. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us a heart to obey as we look at your word today, as we see that you have all authority in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. So in Matthew chapter nine, verses 18 through 26, we see that Jesus has authority over death. Look at verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, which takes us back to last week, what Pastor Bob was talking about with the idea of fasting and new wineskins, as Jesus is talking about these things to them, behold, a ruler came in. This ruler, when we hear the term ruler, we think of a monarchy or, or something like that, a king or a president. This ruler, we know from Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, that this was a man by the name of Jairus. And he was a ruler in the sense that he was a ruler of a synagogue. And what that means is basically that as a ruler of the synagogue in that area, he oversaw the finances of the synagogue. He oversaw the schedule of the synagogue. So he was a ruler in that sense. He was in a way a religious leader. Today, maybe we would refer to him as the executive pastor of a church, right? Like he oversees the finances and the hiring and those kinds of things. And so Jarius is a ruler in that sense. He oversees uh, the complex, the religious complex of the day. And he comes into Jesus and look at how he comes. He kneels before him. It's interesting that this religious leader, this ruler would come to Jesus in this way. That he would come and not say, I just want you to know who I am. I'm Jairus. I'm the ruler of the synagogue in this area. And I'd love for you to do some things for me, right? But that he comes to Jesus with a broken heart and he kneels before Jesus because, look at the rest of the verse, my daughter 
has just died. But come, he says, and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jairus is feeling the weight of his daughter's death, right? And he comes to Jesus with a broken heart. And at this moment, we would assume that Jairus has tried everything that he could possibly do. So he's run out, he's desperate. And he knows and he's heard about what Jesus is doing, healing lepers and healing people with diseases. And he sees this and he's like, maybe Jesus would heal my daughter. We know from Mark and Luke's account that when Jairus was heading towards Jesus, that his daughter was maybe potentially still alive at that moment. And Matthew, with these stories, gets real succinct. He doesn't give us much background because his point is to see that Jesus has authority. So the background of the story is not as important to Matthew as just getting to the point that Jesus has authority over death. And so this man comes and bows before Jesus and asked Jesus to raise his daughter from, dead, from the dead. What's interesting is in the Old Testament, if you were to touch a dead person's body, you would become unclean. So just like we started in Matthew chapter 8 with Jesus touching the leper, rather than Jesus becoming unclean, and she became clean. So again, we're coming at odds with the law again that said, if you touch a person who's dead, you become unclean. So he's asking Jesus to come and touch this daughter of his that was dead. And the Bible says in verse 19, and Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Now again, because Matthew is getting directly to the point, we learn from other gospels that this was a crowd of people going to the house with Jesus. So the picture for us would be that if you've ever been to a Chiefs game and you're waiting to get into the game, have you ever stood in that kind of crowd where you're crammed together, there's no personal space, people are touching you everywhere, that's what's going on in this moment. So Matthew doesn't record that for us, Mark and Luke give us that insight, but Jesus is crammed in these quarters and there's people touching him everywhere as he's heading to Jairus's house. And it says in verse 20, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him. Now, this woman that we meet and this woman who has a discharge of blood, the idea is that she was bleeding all the time. So for 12 years, she never stopped bleeding. And in Leviticus chapter 15, it said, if you never stopped bleeding, then basically you were unclean as well. And everywhere you went, you made it unclean. It, where you sat, where you laid down. So basically somebody who was bleeding all the time, a, a lady that would be bleeding all the time would be considered unclean in their society. They would be outcast and outcast from society. So for 12 years... This woman has been an outcast of society and she has tried everything possible to get healed. She has tried every medicine. She's tried everything that she could to be healed from this bleeding that's going on. And she hears about Jesus coming by and the Bible says that she goes to Jesus. Now what's interesting is if the crowd around Jesus had known that she was unclean, they probably wouldn't have let her push through the crowd. They would have thrown her out, right? Because they would have been making them unclean as she's pushing her way to Jesus. But she gets through the crowd and the Bible says in verse 20 that she touches the fringe of his garment. 
And we know from other passages that when she touches the fringe of his garment, Jesus feels the power go out of him. And Matthew, again, because that wasn't the point of his text, he gets to the point. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. That's the kind of faith that she had. She believed that Jesus could heal her from this bleeding issue that she was having if she could simply just touch the hem of his garment. The Bible says, or Matthew says in verse 22, that Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. Can you imagine this moment for that lady? For 12 years, she has dealt with this issue. And she has done everything she can to make it right. She's went to all the doctors. And in this moment, in an instant, Jesus had healed her. And now she can go home. Now she can be with her family again because she's no longer unclean. She's been made clean by simply a touch of Jesus' garment. That's the kind of authority that he has. In essence, she was dead for 12 years, but now she's been given her life back because of Jesus. The story goes on. And when Jesus came, to the ruler's house, this is Jairus' house, and saw the flute players and the crowds making a commotion. Now, what's the deal with these flute players and, and the crowd there? Well, uh, these were actually hired mourners for the death of Jairus' daughter. So if Jairus, when he left, if his daughter wasn't dead, by this point she's dead because they've hired mourners. Again, in Jesus' time, different than our time, they would actually hire people to come and they would wail at your house from eight to five and they would play sort of the dirge kind of music to just sort of feel the weight of death. Because death was very final, right? And so they were, they were feeling the weight of that. So you would hire mourners to come. So when Jesus and Jairus come to the house, she's obviously dead. You don't hire mourners if the person's not dead, right? And so they come and Jesus sees these uh, mourners out there. And he says to them, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Now we look at that and say, what jerks. But you would have laughed too. How many funerals have you gone to and the person in the grave gets, or in the tomb gets up and walks out? Zero. And if somebody walked in and said to you, listen, cut that out. She's not dead. She's simply sleeping. You would have been like, crazy man just walked into the house, right? You would have laughed at him as well. And so they laugh at Jesus because they don't understand that he has authority over death. And he's about to do what they can't even fathom in their mind. And, but when, it says in verse 25, the crowd had been put outside, he went in, and I love what Jesus does because Jesus makes those of us that are unclean, clean. And he took her by the hand, and the girl arose. Now, what's going on in that house? You know what I'm saying? There's power in Jesus. And he takes a person who is dead and he touches him and he doesn't become unclean. She becomes clean and she comes back to life. And it says in verse 26, and the report of this went through all the district. 
Did you hear about Jairus' daughter? She was dead. They'd hired the mourners and Jesus simply touched her hand and she came back to life. Matthew is telling us this, author, this story because he wants us to see that Jesus has authority over death. This should affect how we live our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has authority over death. Let me make two observations about this text. I want you to notice that the ruler came and knelt before Jesus. And also, I want you to know that the woman came and she was kneeling before Jesus. I think it is good for us to be reminded that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. That when we come to Jesus, whether you're a ruler of the synagogue or a woman who's been an outcast of society, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You come in humility to Jesus. Whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you live in a really nice neighborhood or you live in a really bad neighborhood, whether you work a great job or you just work a job that you're getting through, we all come to Jesus the same way. We come to Jesus in humility. I love that statement that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And we see that in this story. That whether it's a woman that's an outcast of society or it's this ruler of the synagogue, they both come to Jesus the same way with humility. Have you come to Jesus with humility? Have you bowed your knee before Jesus as having all authority in your life? If you haven't today, I would invite you to humble yourself. His flag is flying and we must simply humble ourselves under his authority in our lives and submit ourselves to him. And the Bible says when we do that, we are saved, we are rescued from our sins and I would invite you to do that today. For those of us that have done that, my question from this story of Jesus healing and Jesus showing us that he has all authority over death. My question for you is, do you have a theology of death in your life? Do you know as a follower of Jesus Christ what you believe about death? I really believe that one of the things that should set us apart as followers of Jesus Christ is what we think about death. Because death for us is very different than those who don't know Jesus Christ. Listen to Jesus' words, and I've shared this with you many times. John chapter 11 and verse 25 and 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus asked the question, do you believe this? So as followers of Jesus Christ, our theology of death is different than the world around us because we believe that we don't die, we simply fall asleep. That's how Paul would refer to it as, right? Because in Christ, we live with him forever. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. So we view death differently than the world around us. Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in, this, in flesh and blood, Jesus likewise partook of the same things, that through death 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So as followers of Jesus Christ, this is great news. We don't fear death. Do we feel the sting of death? For sure. It hurts. Death stings deeply, but we know that, we, that death for us is not a finality. Death is real, but it's not final. Why? Because we've been set free from the fear of death because Jesus has conquered death through his resurrection. And so it causes us to have a different perspective of death. And if we have a different perspective of death, my question is, how should it cause us to live our lives then? How should it change the way that we live if we know that death is is not final if we know that really our life actually begins at death that we actually move into glory with the father right that we are absent from this life and we're present with him maybe it should cause us to live with that in view Maybe it should cause everything that we do to be with eternity in view. Maybe we should view sports with eternity in view. Maybe we should view our schoolwork with eternity in view. Maybe we should view our marriages with eternity in view. Maybe we should view our relationships with eternity in view. Because at the end of the day, that's where we're going. To die in this life is simply to go to the next life to be with Christ forever. I love that Jesus shows us that he has authority over death. Then look at verses 27 through 31. Jesus, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, It's interesting that Matthew, again, has two blind men. Remember last time we talked about the two demon-possessed man? And why did Matthew have two demon-possessed man? Because in a Jewish court of law, you have to have two witnesses, right, to affirm anything. So again, he's saying these two blind men were coming to Jesus, and they say to Jesus, have mercy on us. But they don't stop there. They say, have mercy on us, what? Son of David. You remember Matthew chapter one and verse one, as Matthew starts his gospel, he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. This is the cue, the key, or or, uh, the, the thing that Matthew is telling us to remember that this is for Jesus to be known as the Messiah. And so again, by having these men say, have mercy on us, son of David, they knew that Jesus was the Messiah who was come and the anointed one, the king that was come. And they knew that Jesus could heal them because he was the Messiah. Verse 28, he entered the house and the blind men came to him and Jesus said, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. Jesus has authority over disability. 
And Jesus sternly warned them. This, before when we've heard Jesus, he just warns them. Now we add it sternly because Jesus is a little ticked with them because they're not listening. And Jesus sternly warns them, see that no one knows about it. But look at verse 31. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district, right? They were so changed by Jesus, they couldn't hold it in. They had to let people know that they had been healed by Jesus. Jesus is showing us that, that he has authority over disability. Now, here, here's the danger of this text. The danger of this text is that we put our name in with the blind men. Okay, that we would read this text and think of this. When he entered the house, the blind men, instead of the blind men, we put our current physical ailment, came to him and Jesus said, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And we say to him, yes, Lord. Then he touches their eyes and says, according to your faith, be it done to you. And that we turn this text into all about us. That we're the blind man, that we need to be healed. And if we just had enough faith we could be healed of any disability, disease, anything that we had. Remember, the point of this text is that Jesus has all authority. The point of this text is not you. The point of this text is not me. The point of the text is that Jesus has all authority over disease. But what the danger of this and some people do with this text is they take it and they apply it to their current physical ailment and say, if I just had more faith, then maybe Jesus would heal me. And they take, according to your faith, be it done to you. And they say, well, these guys must have had a bunch of faith. So that's why they were healed. You know what the reality of that translation is? It's simply because they believed that Jesus could heal them. He healed them. It wasn't the portion of their faith. And so don't believe someone who comes to you and says, if you would just have a little more faith, you could be healed of your disability. If you just had a little more faith, then, then you could be delivered from your disease. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is that Jesus has all authority over disability. That's the point. And there's been this sort of wave recently of this idea of healing in our country, in our culture. Um, at Asbury Revival, if you've followed any of that, you've probably heard stories of people being healed at the Asbury Revival. If you watch the Jesus Revolution movie, part of that movie is right that, that people were healed at that revival that was happening. So as I'm studying this text on Wednesday night. I'm thinking about what Jesus is after in this text and these things that I'm hearing in our culture of this idea of faith and healing. I, I was on Facebook, which is really important when you're studying to be on Facebook because it helps you stay focused. So I was on Facebook in a church that I know in the Midwest that, that I've enjoyed and listened to before. They pop up as they're live and they're having a revival. And so I clicked on the live link and the pastor was on the screen and he was talking about ex being excited about seeing God move in their midst. And he introduces this guy and this guy comes up and says his name and the guy begins to talk and he begins to talk about healing. And for the first 10 minutes, all the guy talks about is this idea of according to your faith, be it done to you. And so he just talks about their faith and he tells, he's like, I can feel faith in this room tonight is high, right? 
He tells a story of being in Brazil and there was 3,000 people in the room and their faith was big that night. He could feel their faith and, and on that night, half of the congregation was healed. The next night he went to another service in Brazil and it was a smaller crowd and the faith wasn't as strong that night. And so not many people got healed that night because the faith wasn't as strong. And so for 10 minutes, I listened to this guy and all he's talking about is me and my faith. And, and maybe I'm not healed because I don't have enough faith. So I go research the guy. His headline is this, this man travels the world demonstrating God's sovereign power to heal. Buyer beware. If anybody says they have the power to heal or to demonstrate God's sovereign power to heal, buyer beware. So what are you saying, Steve, right? Like that's what you're after. What are you saying? Can Jesus heal today? Yes, I believe that Jesus has the power to heal today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So as he healed people in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, he still has the power to heal. Jesus uh, has power to heal today. Why? Because we've seen Jesus has authority over disability. So does he have the power to heal? Yes. Does he care about your body? Yes, he does. In fact, he says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're to take care of our bodies because they don't belong to us. They belong to God. So we, we take care of our bodies. But the reality is this. We're all going to get sick at some point. We're all going to die. And what's interesting about Paul is that Paul had this thorn in the side, this suffering that he wanted removed. And the Bible says he went to the Lord three times and said, Lord, would you remove this from me? Would you take this from me? And what did the Lord say to him? My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus says to Paul, I have authority to heal you of this disability, probably an eye issue that he had. But I just want you to know my grace is sufficient for you, which would Paul would cause Paul to write Romans 8, 18 that says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul says, if, if the Lord chooses not to take away this disability in my life, the glory that I'm headed to, it's worth it, right? And it leads us to be reminded of Revelation chapter 21 in verse four, when he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. When Jesus was healing, he was giving us a glimpse of what is to come. He wasn't saying that this is going to continue on and I'm going to continue to heal. Why? Because he was healing so that we could see that he was God and we could see that he was the Messiah, the anointed one that we've been waiting for. And now we don't need healings to happen so that we can know that he is God and that he is the anointed one. We have his word and we know who he is and we know why he came and we trust him. And so if he chooses to heal, praise the Lord. 
If he chooses not to heal, we know that there's a day coming when he will heal us all of our disease, of our disabilities, that he will heal us in that moment. And it doesn't come down to your faith, that you don't have enough faith, that's why you're not being healed. Don't believe that lie. Do we pray that Jesus would heal people? Yes. Why? Because Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer, what does it say? That we should pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's God's will in heaven? Well, we just read it. No crying, no pain, no death. So we pray that God will heal people here on earth, but our stake's not in that. If he chooses not to do it, it's not like, well, I don't believe in God anymore. He doesn't really love me. We trust the Father's heart and that he's working everything according to his plan. Why? Because his flag never comes down. He always has authority, even in the most difficult moments of our lives. He still has authority. Then Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man who was mute. we've, We've already encountered this with Jesus, so I'll quickly scan over it as they were going away behold a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him and we know that Jesus has authority over darkness over the devil so the demon was cast out the mute man spoke and what commentators tell us is that the end of verse 33 and verse 34 could be a summation of all that has happened in these miracles because you have two responses the crowd marveled saying never was anything like this seen in Israel They're amazed by the authority that Jesus has in his works. But in verse 34, we see the Pharisees, the religious people say, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. So what's funny is they can't deny the works of Jesus. So they've got to change their tactic because you can't deny Jairus' daughters alive right before them. You can't deny that two blind men see right in front of you. You can't de- deny that this mute man who's speaking them to them now. So now the religious people change their perspective and they're saying to themselves, all right, so let's just say this. He's from the devil and the devil is the one giving him the power to do this. They were denying the source of Jesus' authority. And Jesus is saying, listen, I I have authority over the devil as well. Verse 35, and he went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. If you go back to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23, Matthew says, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. These are bookends on this section, right? So 423, 923 is closing up this section saying, this is what we've seen Jesus do, teach and preach and heal. And it's all pointing us to the gospel of the kingdom of God, that Jesus has authority in his words and his works. And then verse 36 says, And when he saw the crowds, the assumption is not in this moment, but as you watched the works of Jesus and as you watched him teach on the Sermon on the Mount, that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. There's no English word that best translates the Greek word that is used here, compassion. It's hard to get a, a, a word that comes, so they just use the term compassion. I think a good way for us to understand is that when Jesus looked at the crowds, his heart went out to them. 
When you say your heart goes out to somebody, that's like an inside response, right? When you see devastation in the world or you see someone who's been hurt, your, your heart, that, that's the idea. When Jesus looked at the crowds, he didn't say, you're getting what you deserve. You deserve disease and death and ah. When Jesus looked at the crowd, his heart sunk. Why does his heart sink? Because these people were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know what Jesus is doing? He's taking a shot at the religious people. They were in a religious area. And in the Old Testament, the religious leaders were known as shepherds of the people. And so when Jesus says they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, he's saying these religious people, they've led you wrong. They're leading you actually away from God rather than to God. They're using their rules and their righteousness to pull you away from God rather than pointing to the reality that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one that you have been waiting for. And so he looked at them as people without a shepherd, a sheep without a shepherd. And so he looks at his disciples with this heart going out to the people. And I see Jesus with a tear coming down his eye saying, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus' response to the crowds is not too bad for you. His response to the crowd is pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send out laborers into his harvest. His response is prayer. And as we look at the crowds today, as we look at the LGBTQ plus community as we, we look at those who struggle with addictions, as we look at people that are anti-God, we shouldn't look at them and be like angry. We should look at them with a heart of compassion. Our, our, we, we should, our heart should sink for them because they're sheep without a shepherd and our heart should be, Lord, send laborers into that harvest. When we look at the world and we realize that there's billions of people without Jesus Christ, we shouldn't be thinking they're going to get what they deserve because they worship other gods. No, our hearts should break and say, Lord, please send laborers into that harvest. You have people in those areas, in those sections of our society that need Jesus. Send laborers into those areas. And, and can I say this? The laborers is not just pastors and missionaries. You're a laborer. Do we need pastors and missionaries? Yes. I'm praying that God will raise up more than three over the next seven years of pastors and missionaries to send out of our church like Pastor Marcus to go and take the gospel to Indian Hills. And in two Sundays from now, they'll have their first service and there'll be a church planted out of our church in a community that had no church There'll be 50 to 100 people gathering on that Sunday to hear of the good news of Jesus Christ, to hear that the flag of Jesus is still waving, that he has all authority. 
And I'm praying that God will do that in our midst. But I'm also praying that where you go to work, the flag of Jesus' authority will wave high there too. I'm praying that where you live and in your home, that the flag of Jesus' authority will wave there as well. And that you'll be a laborer where God has placed you at. Because I believe the harvest is not just out there. The harvest is right where he has planted you. Father, we thank you that you have all authority. Man, it, I just, these two chapters have made me have more confidence in you than I've ever had. Because you have authority. We name it, you've got authority over it. And so no matter what comes in our life, you have not lost control. Your flag never comes down. It always waves. And so I pray, Lord, that we would live as your people with total confidence in you. And help us as we go into the harvest that you would use us as laborers wherever you've planted us. Smithville, Parkville, Riverside, Gladstone, Kansas City, North Kansas City, downtown, wherever you've planted us at. Carney, Lord, use us as laborers in your harvest. As we put these names before you on the stage, I pray that you would use us as laborers to these people, to see them come, to know, and to follow you because you have all authority. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.